This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I slash Spotify. Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's Deputy Editor and Podcast Host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cookery writers, and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks, and shortcuts. I'm delighted to welcome Eleanor Ford today. Eleanor is a cook, food writer and author of two award-winning books, Samarkand and Fire Islands. Her latest book, The Nutmeg Trail, is an exploration of spice, combining historical research with a travel writer's eye and a cook's nose for a memorable recipe. It explores how spices from across the Indian Ocean have been adopted into cuisines all over the world. Welcome to the podcast, Eleanor. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Now, today we're going to explore 10 things you need to know about the ancient spice roots. But first of all, could you tell us a bit about your journey in food and how you came to write this particular book? Well, I've been writing about food for a long time, starting off as a recipe editor. And what really fascinated me was the way that you can look at flavours and particularly flavours from different countries and you could see a story behind them, a journey that flavours took and how they fit together and how as you cross regions and cross borders, you can see a a blurring, a kind of melding of different Um, flavours. So I became really interested in the way that food can tell a story of our world. Yeah, amazing. Um, And this book in particular is is, um, your third book. Do you think your first book's kind of started sparking things off about spice and how it worked and why? Absolutely. My first book 
uh, looked particularly at Central Asia, which mm. is a melting pot of East and West and where so many different cuisines come together and flavours fuse. Um, my second book, Fire Islands, was about the cuisine of Indonesia. Mm. And that really is one of the starting points of the spice route yeah. with nutmeg and clove yeah. coming from Indonesia. So that really got me thinking about spices and the journeys that they can take us on as we follow the journeys they literally went on. Amazing. So you were going to kick us off with nutmeg, the spice and the title of the book, and a story to explain how it became so precious that it was actually involved in a kind of trade war, really. Tell, tell us about that. Yes, nutmeg is a spice with a very powerful, very bloody history. It became so desired, so sought after, that in 1667, the tiny island called Run in Indonesia, which is where nutmeg originally grew, grew was traded for Manhattan, which was... Um, named uh, from New Amsterdam into New York. It was, a, it was an exchange between the British and the Dutch who were circling their empires of power. And nutmeg was deemed so important that it was worth trading New York for. And then what happened to the people on the island? Well, it came with a very brutal and bloody history. Um, spice trade had been so peaceful and carrying on for a long time. But when the Europeans got involved, the thirst for this commodity became so huge that there was a lot of war, of conflict. Um, the Dutch left a very sad legacy on the islands where they took mm. control over. And a lot of the people suffered hugely. Their crops were decimated, their livelihoods taken away, there were massacres. There was a huge amount of bloodshed in the name of spice. And it's it's something important to remember for all of the wonderful legacy of mm. spice around the world. There are these these sad colonialist links that I think are important to acknowledge. And it is sad because I think for your second point you said it, it wasn't always like this go back 4,000 years and it was actually a peaceful trade. Absolutely. Spice is one of the earliest commodities of the world that was traded. So yeah, if we look back 4,000 years, we've got so many different nationalities who plied the seas across the Indian Ocean, bringing spice east, west, north, spreading spices from all the different regions that they were grown to other regions. So it was a real time of people coming together, of, um, of travel, of transport, of taking goods around. It really laid the pathways for globalisation. Mm -hmm. And it was a very peaceful and um, profitable trade for a long time before it became too profitable and too greedy. And talking about the, you know, the, the preciousness of it and the value of it, um, one of your points was cinnamon was so precious at one point that traders would make up mad stories to protect us, tell us <laughs> to protect it. Tell us about that. So if you look at about the fourth century BC, you will have writers in Rome talking about cinnamon um, how to gather the sticks. They were um, taken by wild, fearsome birds up to build their nests in these steep cliffs. And it would, in order to be able to lure down the birds, to shake down the cinnamon, uh, you would throw um, donkey meat down and that would lure the birds down. It would weigh down their nests and it would scatter. So it, it, it sort of built up this great story, which of course was completely untrue. But it did contribute to this mysterious allure that spice held and hid its true origins so mm. helping to drive up prices it's thought that arab traders were using these stories to 
keep the real um, origins of cinnamon in Sri Lanka or cassia in China um, hidden and and keeping it mysterious and, and exciting. It was, it was being believed. It was it was being believed. In <laughs> yeah, it was interesting because when I was reading um, in the intro, you said because because often the spice route spice routes were so long and so involved different journeys and different crews taking them that your start point and end point no one would kind of really know where it had come from absolutely no one could ever know the whole journey yeah. because there were so many different links so at each stage spice sort of became more removed from where it had come from more expensive of yeah. course and you know the the allure sort of heightened as it got further and further from yeah. its source the other interesting thing i think you said about cinnamon was um was that in in the West, you know, we, we think of cinnamon as a sweet um, spice, whereas, you know, often in the East, they, they use it in savoury dishes. So it's quite quite a different way of thinking, because, again, probably haven't been shown how to use it and just say, well, I'm going to, I'm tasting it. It's, it's got a sweet warming flavour. I'm going to use it like this. Well, interestingly, cinnamon isn't sweet in its own right, but it mm. enhances the sweetness of whatever it's paired with. Mm. So it can be used, um, absolutely. It very often is used in savoury cooking, as vanilla might be as well. Yeah. It's really a learned association from the cuisine you're used to eating as to how a spice could be used. But yeah. if you look around the world, you can see the same spices used in remarkably different ways. Definitely. And for number four, you wanted to talk about the rarity and value and how spices were used in many other things other than cooking. Yes, I think what I've hinted at before, talking about this great journey they went on, these spices were held as something that was very mysterious, mm. something that was exotic it represented something that was from far away so very often would be tied into magic they'd be used as medicines they'd be used for worship you know burnt as incense these were these sort of exotic otherworldly commodities and um also because of the great value they held could be used to show off status symbols mm. so being able to add a flourish of spice to to food or to perfume would show that you could afford it yeah. and um, that in itself as we know value creates um, value <laughs> yeah. and I think there was some I, I was quite well actually you shouldn't be surprised about this because in the um, in the chapter on saffron you're talking about how Cleopatra had it in her bath or, <laughs> you know it's but you, when you think about you know how much saffron is actually worth it's this ostentatious sort of display of wealth as well isn't it absolutely so often used in these historical amazingly ostentatious displays and saffron is still so expensive it kind of gives us a hint as to spices you know today's spices feel very accessible mm. even though they've still gone on great journeys but saffron is still so expensive. It's stamen still more than the weight in gold. And it just gives the kind of hint of what spices all used to be like, this yeah. great extravagance. And yes, to bath in it, what a display <laughs> of, of grandeur. Um, and again, you know, for number five, the movement of ideas along with spices, because obviously you've created a route that spices need to go through from one place to another you've got people moving traders moving you've got ideas moving as well tell us tell us about that so the spice routes are a maritime route they're a sort of web really of routes that boats followed as they took spices and other goods mm. all around asia and 
through the Middle East to Europe and back again. It was a, a web in every direction. And people would sail these routes. Um, sailors would have to stop in ports and wait for the trade winds to change mm. and would often wait there for months at a time before going on to the next part. And so people, this brought together people from all walks of life, many different nationalities in these cosmopolitan hubs. And there they naturally would exchange ideas. This was the way that people would bring together new arts, new religion, music. They'd stop and they'd talk philosophy. And of course, with that came new ideas and food. Mm. But yeah, I, I guess um, when you talked before about the you know slight blurring between um, cuisines, did do you see that in in recipes where there'll be a, a recipe from one country which is very similar to the other one with just a few little spices that are missing or added? Or absolutely, you can see so many recipes that show a journey. And um, there's a lot of crossover, for instance, between India and Indonesia, yeah. um, particularly the sort of korma-like dishes you can see have travelled from India where they are rich um, in nuts and in fragrance and in spices, not necessarily piquancy, mm. but in a sort of aroma. And those have travelled with the sailors to become the gulais of Indonesia, where the flavours are changed a little, the ingredient basis has changed, yeah. but you can see that the idea has, has travelled quite a long distance yeah. across the seas, but um, <laughs> with the same route. Yeah. <laughs> And for number six, I love this. You say at almost every spice route port from Istanbul to Singapore, you'll find a version of a kebab. I love <laughs> the fact that the kebab becomes the universal sort of snack of choice. Tell us about that. Well, kebab's one of these foods that really has travelled almost universally. <laughs> but the idea of meat on a stick probably started in Turkey or Central Asia. I mean, it was a great campaign meal for soldiers to be able to cook at camps in large scales. But it, this is a um, food that really travelled with the Arab sailors who held a pretty good monopoly on the spice trade for many millennia. And so along with Islam, which travelled and coursed along the spice routes, so did this idea of a kebab and merging and changing with each country that it landed uh, in and uh, taking on the flavours of that country or taking on the um, ways that people like to cook. So by the time you get to Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, you get into satays, still mm. a form of kebab, still something that had come in with the Arab traders, but now having entirely new flavour profiles, bringing in lemongrass and lime leaves and taking on a completely distinct character. But you can see this all across the region to the spice route. And I, I like looking at kebabs yeah. as a story it's for a, this. It's a, when you think about it, it's a really easy visual idea to, you know, you've got your coals or your open fire, you've got a stick, you've got bits of meat or fish or vegetables on that stick. And anyone from any, even without speaking the language, 
can understand what that is. Absolutely. And yes, you say fish and vegetables and this came, you know, things started as meat, yeah. but then you end up getting minced meat and it turns into koftas. You end up um, bringing in fish and when you're near the coast and you, you can really make this such an adaptable idea with so many different base ingredients and flavourings that sometimes it's very far removed from where it started. Yeah. I love that this is a single idea that had yeah. such a widespread. You'd not be surprising to know that on olivemagazine.com um, things on sticks or kebabs is one of our most popular recipes because <laughs> people love them because they're really easy to make aren't they well they're so tactile yeah as well. exactly um i love number seven um and i'm just going to read it out the search for peppercorns led to the discovery of america how <laughs> Well, at this exact point in history where spice was becoming so valuable, everyone wanted it because this was a commodity that was um, held such a great um, weight in its value mm. that people were looking to try and find new ways to break the monopoly that um, spice traders held and get control of that power. So peppercorns were largely coming from India, largely plied by Arab traders again. And the Europeans were thinking, now there must be a way. Can we get to India another way? The idea that perhaps we could sail um, west rather than east. And of course, this led to Christopher Columbus setting off to look for peppercorns yeah. when he arrived in America. And for him, rather disappointingly, found allspice and found chili but yeah. not the peppercorns he was seeking. <laughs> but he called chilli, or chilies became known as peppers, perhaps to kind of soothe this, this disappointment. Yeah, incredible. Um, I was going to ask you, actually, because one thing, and we keep talking about, you know, the, 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 the rarity and the value, but it, also in the book you talk about how, how that kind of went up and down in various times. What, what, what would, would that be one of the reasons why, where a new source was discovered or you know, somebody else took over. I mean, how did how did the sort of commodity go up and down in price? Absolutely. There were waves of popularity, particularly if we look in Europe, mm. um, in the sort of dark age, so-called dark ages, spices all but fell out of culinary use. In medieval times, there was a huge upsurge, oh, really? um, more because of availability than anything else. Mm. So spices were always desired. And then there became a time where perhaps the trade was too successful after all of this fervour around the 16th, 17th, 18th century. Spice became that deadly thing. It became accessible. It became available. Uh -huh. And um, when peppercorn suddenly could be on every table, they no longer held that status. And so perhaps the allure dropped a little. Oh, wow. Okay. Let's talk about Chile's arrival in Asia, because I was surprised by this, um, that it only arrived in the 16th century. And Chile's, it just feels so native to, to Asian cooking, you know, all over. So, I mean, how did that happen that it that it came so late? Well, yes, it feels so intrinsic to yeah. the food. And there has always been a, a love of of heat of piquancy in Asia yeah. but that used to come from peppercorns and it used to come from ginger both of which can lend heat perhaps not such an aggressive one but can bring and mustard seeds as well but it was only uh, chilies were held in just the Americas and it was only when Columbus sailed there and at the turn of the 16th century mm. chilies started moving um eastwards and they came with the traders who were 
taking chili seeds themselves to pep up their own food and chili okay. very quickly is a very easy um, plant to grow yeah. and so very quickly people started growing a few chilies for their own use and this sort of band and love of chili very quickly spread it was a plant that could be grown anywhere it didn't have to be carefully harvested like peppercorns it mm. didn't have to be taken on a journey to get there it's a plant that so quickly overtook um, Asian food within the lifetime of the conquistadors so it was it was literally native of South America and those kind of countries where they were using chili and bef like way before we're talking what what century uh, well, chilies, I think, have been found in very early Central and Southern American cuisine. Yeah. But really, it was only um, brought to Europe and to Asia in the early 16th century, okay. very, very late um, 15th century wow. as well. It's incredible. Um, it was the Portuguese who did a lot of the uh, trade, and they were <laughs> holding quite a heavy kind of grip on the trade at the time. Yeah. And um, yeah, these Portuguese trading ships took Chile with them. It's amazing that it's it's so prevalent there now. And, you know, you, you can't think of Asian food without thinking of Chile. So, <laughs> yeah, great. Um, but number nine, you say ginger was the first spice and it, it, it actually predates journey records. It's that old. Tell us about it ginger. Is, it's, it's hard to know where ginger... Most spices, we can tell where they came from. We mm. can trace their journey. Ginger, it's hard to know beyond Asia, possibly Southeast Asia, possibly China, because really it is a spice that travelled with the very earliest um, spice traders, people who were going on little outrigger boats and taking ginger with them, which would grow aboard their ships. And so it found its way broadly across Asia before we can really mark where it was that it originated. Yeah. And that's why it's the foundation of so many cuisines. So much of Asian food in particular has ginger at its base. Yeah. And I think you said in the book as well, the reason, one of the reasons is, again, it's one of those things that grow so easily and they could even grow it on ships so you could keep it alive and and import the fresh ginger root and then keep growing it absolutely the spices that are in some ways the most successful at spreading yeah. ginger and chili also command the lower prices because they don't have to um be taken on these great journeys so things like nutmeg and cardamom become the fine spices the ones that are prized ones that are more accessible uh, are perhaps found in more foods, but yeah, um, yeah were easier to spread. What, what what are the rarest spices? Would you say, or the, the most expensive? What what commandeers the the biggest prices? The most expensive today is um, saffron, followed by vanilla, followed by cardamom. Oh, cardamom, really? Yeah, I'm surprised. With green or black or both? I'm not sure about their relative prices, yeah. but I think that uh, green is certainly much wider used than black. Yeah. Um, but then you get these spices that are very unusual and can command very high spices, uh, high prices, uh, because perhaps of their rarity. So you yeah. can take something like a um, cassia bud, also known as a cinnamon berry. So okay. that will be pretty expensive because of its rarity. Yeah, I don't think I've ever come across one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, we were going to talk about some spices that, that aren't around as much or in fact extinct tell us about some lost spices well there are some spices that are still around today but don't hold such global importance as once they did 
For instance, in um, medieval times, there was grains of paradise were very popular, um, an African pepper, and a, a grains of salim is another African pepper that just aren't found outside of their countries of origin so much today. Mm-hmm. Um, another is a cubeb, which is a tailed pepper from Indonesia. That was once something that was widely used and often found in kind of early gingerbread recipes, for instance, across Europe. But now its, its use is more limited to the countries it grows in and the islands of Indonesia. Um, there's one spice that vanished entirely, which was called sylphium. And this was um, obtained from a deliciously scented resin of a North African plant. And it was a favourite of the ancient Greeks. Wow. Who loved it so much that they often used it in a lot of their savoury cooking. Yeah. And um, there are sort of odes written to Sylphium. It seemed to be one of their most popular spices. But um, it seems that first century Romans were the last people ever to taste it because it was wiped out due oh, to wow. over-harvesting. <laughs> so... Um, it's thought that it perhaps tastes a little like asafoetida, but we can only really guess at what wondrous flavours it once imparted to food. Oh, sad. That food makes me feel sad, though. We have, <laughs> though, you know, in um, we have got loads of lovely spices to, like, compensate for, haven't we? It's such a lovely book, Alna, and it's also full of many, many recipes. Um, how did you break up the chapters in the book? Well, what I've done is is to think about the different flavour profiles of spices. Because I think very often when you say spice, you think immediately of perhaps those earthy flavour profiles of Mm. cumin, coriander, or you might think of chilli heat, pepper heat. But then I think it's also interesting to think about those fragrant and floral spices or those that are a bit brighter and fresher, like fresh spice pastes. Mm. Um, So, yes, the recipes are divided into chapters according to flavour. And you've got got a flavour profile we at the beginning in fact there's so many little lovely little references um you've got a journey of flavor telling you like for each region or country what the signature spices is there's some great um a sort of map of all of the different spice blends that's another thing that i really love is is the spice blends and how they can how they all have their own character using the same spices but it'll be completely different depending on the ratio absolutely almost the same spices there's a map where you can sort of compare them and yeah. see that you've got the same spices featuring again and again but just little twists little ratio little extra ingredients brings an entirely different character yeah. and what are you, what are some of your favorite recipes from the book Oh, so hard to choose, but I think that everyone's got to try the tandoori chicken. Tandoori chicken. <laughs> and that, that is a crowd pleaser as well, isn't it? A crowd pleaser. And it's a kind of beautiful example of, of layering spices because it's got a double marinating process oh, yeah. um, with different spices. In Fantastic. Um, so your book is out now. It's called The Nutmeg Trail, A Culinary Journey Along the Ancient Spice Routes. Um, it's published by Murdoch Books and people can buy it at any good bookshop or online. Um, and where can people keep in touch with what you're doing Instagram? On Instagram, I'm at Eleanor Ford Food. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming to chat to us again today, Eleanor. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. Do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.